0: I would invite you to remain standing as we turn to the Scriptures in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, we'll begin reading at verse 1, the focus of which will be verses 3 through 5. We're using this to give us a vision of where we're going. Revelation 22, now hear the Word of God. And He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of its fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Our gracious Father, we pray that You would open up our minds and hearts to the vision that You would have for Your church and where all of this is going. Then it would clarify what our roles and our purpose and our responsibilities and our privileges and our giftings and our joy is for the life that we live now. So we ask that the Spirit would attend this and fill us with understanding and and help us in our hearts and minds to, to know our place in this grand narrative of your story. And we pray this for your glory and for your great name's sake in Christ. Amen. You may be seated. This morning I'm getting back to the series on the vision of heritage that we began at the very beginning of the year that we have now taken a bit of several weeks off in light of addressing some of our immediate context But as we get back to our objective of painting the vision for the church of heritage, helping us uh, as we enter into our second decade, uh, already have entered that, of our history here, we want to know what the church ought to look like and what we ought to be doing, where we're heading, where are we going, how then should we live? The intention is not to set out some distinctives of a particular church or ministry, but rather an attempt to find out God's vision for His church and then square ourselves up with that. Theoretically, this should be the same vision if it were if we were in the 1st century or the 12th century or the 21st century or the 36th century. This should be the same if it's in America or Europe or in Eastern Asia. It's not dependent on time or on its location. We do not want to be a niche church with a a niche mission, with particular distinctives except the biblical ones that God has revealed in His Word. We don't want to give a certain emphasis on one important aspect at the expense of other essentials. And this is sometimes very difficult to maintain and its proper balance. But that should be our vision. We begin this series in addressing the individual sphere with the gospel itself. And what I hope to do next is to help us to understand a very big picture. And in that picture, hopefully we can better understand what your personal role is. How you need to be living your life and where all of this is going with purpose. Many Christians simply don't know what their purpose in life is. Or what they should be doing, or how they should live. So many a life live a life with kind of the sacred and secular dichotomy. They come to church on the Lord's Day, they do their sacred thing, and <clears throat> then they go out Monday through Saturday to do their, their secular thing, and these two really don't overlap or have much to do with each other. And so they buy their time here until they finally die so they can go over to the other shore. And that's oftentimes how Christians live their life. But if we understand God's plan for your life and how that integrates into a larger narrative of what He's doing in the world, it'll help you to find your place. It'll detail what you are to be about in your life. You will have meaning and purpose. You'll know how to use your spiritual gifts with the gifting and the time that God has given you. It'll help you to live effectively rather than just buying your time, wasting your life away. So I'd like to take this morning and consider the end of the Bible where this is all going. That will in some part give us a vision toward the end and it will help us to understand where all this is going so we should better understand what we're called to right now toward those objectives. It's like one person would say, we begin with the end in mind. That's just a, um, a principle that God gives us here as He shows us the end And he shows how consistent that is with how then we should be living. So let's look at that vision in Revelation 22. Where is all of this headed? And we might even say, this is our vision. The vision for where all this is headed in glory becomes our vision for this church, for this congregation. This is what we need to be about. And as soon as we understand our vision and where it's all going, then that gives us the big picture. It really details for us Our purpose in life, right down to the very specific way we train our children, the way I live my life, how I spend Monday through Saturday, how I come into here uh, prepared for worship. Because all of that's heading toward a final end that is not inseparable from what is going on today. God's people have been on a trajectory now since the creation of the world And from this text this morning, we see twin vocations that we'll find throughout all of Scripture, twin vocations for God's people, and those twin vocations are not inseparable, but they go together in a cohesive whole, and they are, one, worshiping, and number two, reigning. Worshiping and reigning are your twin vocations. In the final book of the Bible, we have a picture of heavenly worship going on with the Apostle John. That's what the vision was going on there, that John was looking into heaven, seeing heavenly worship. And then we have throughout the book of Revelation, these twin vocations of worshiping and reigning. In fact, it mentions this no less than about five times, one of which is our passage before us. I'd like to make this an interactive time together, and I would encourage you to bring your Bibles. I do know that the Bible was written to be heard, but we live in such an advanced place in the economy of God's administration. Not only do we have it heard, but now we can see it, and we can both hear it, and we can study it, and we can read it right here all together so we have all of our senses involved so if you bring your bibles and we can go through this together i think it will actually help us to gel in what we're seeing here let's go back for just a moment to revelation chapter 1 as we see at the beginning of this vision of heavenly worship in revelation chapter 1 he says in verse 5 and 6 to him who loved us and washed us from our sins with his in his own blood And has made us kings and priests to God and Father, to whom be glory and dominion forever and ever. He has made us kings and priests. In Revelation 5, chapter 5, verse 9, again we see this theme. And they sang a new song. There's worship. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by the blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. And then Revelation 20 Verse 6 says, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. Whatever your view on the millennium is, whatever system you come up with, we know that we are called to be kings and priests on the earth, Revelation 5, and we will do so with Christ here on the earth. And that's where it's all going. And when the new heavens and the new earth come into its consummation and glory, we find that that is what continues to happen. We continue to reign with Christ as kings and priests. That's part of the very direction and the end toward which it's going. Our calling in life here today, your calling is to be a king and a priest, to be ruling and worshiping. That is our vision for this church. It is your vision as an individual Christian, and those go together. Now this calling began back in the garden at the very beginning. Now I'm going to ask you to invite you to turn your Bibles all the way to Genesis chapter 1. Oh, you could probably just quote this, but I think it'll be good for us to see it once again in the Holy Scripture that God has given us through the Spirit Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In case if we didn't get that, he's going to say it. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over everything that moves on the earth. In fact, we're going to see that that dominion includes the entirety of not only things that move, but also of inanimate objects and everything of God's creation. We have in the successive uh, verses of chapter 2 that it goes on in there. Uh, in, in chapter verse 2, verses 2 and 3, now God establishes a Sabbath day. This is the day of worship. In verse 7, He creates man, a human, And a human, created in the likeness of God, is made out of the earth and with the Spirit of God. In verse 15, God puts man in the garden to tend it and to keep it. And those two words, to tend, the tending is the idea of cultivation. Culture. Creating culture. And to tend it and keep it. The word keep is the idea of you... Uh, Or to keep a castle. We have a castle keep. That is to guard it, to protect it, to watch over it. There's a stewardship there. And then in verses 16 and 17, God establishes His covenant relationship with man, which then demonstrates in that very relationship the distinction between the Creator and the creature. Now God establishes man in the earth to be his vicegerent. And a vicegerent is one who is a person who exercises delegated authority in behalf of a sovereign. And that's what man was in the earth. But in doing so, God ensured that man understood that he was a steward and not an owner. One who has been given the authority, but also one who is under authority. In verses nineteen and twenty, now once man was established as God's veteran, this vicegerent in the earth, God's representative made in His image, God gave man his first assignment in naming all of the animals, and it's interesting how much liberty God gives man in this assignment. It's quite amazing to see when it says, and whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. And then God creates woman to help man to be the partner in life in his life calling. Priest and king. What we see from the very beginning of the Scriptures is the establishment of man's twin vocation to be a king, to rule, to take dominion, to subdue the earth, but to also be its priest in its most fundamental state. These two vocations are that which we are designed into the image of God, have been assigned the great privilege, have been put over all of creation as its head here upon the earth under God. And as king, man would rule. He would take dominion over creation. He would even name the animals. In its broadest and most developed sense, this would mean creating culture. Man was intended, not intended only to be a gardener of the earth, a tiller of the ground, although that was included. But the cultivation would include every aspect of life which involves the materials found in the earth, including building cities and making music and creating art and theater and, and film and technology and horticulture and biology and astronomy, engineering. And this was all part of man's design after his creator. He was called to be God's vicegerent in the likeness of God on the earth. And when God created man, He made man in His own image. That in itself gifted man with the many abilities and the faculties of which the rest of creation did not have. The original image included the original righteousness, original holiness, And original knowledge. See, that's that's how man can do what he does. Along with the authority to to take dominion over all the earth. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. And that is why man is so creative. He's like his creator. And his creator wants man to be creative. He's simply mimicking his maker as creator... Because he's made in the image of his creator. And that's what man is designed to do. But man was to do this for God's glory and not for himself. This creative aspect, this work that we have all been called to is part of our kingly aspect of how God has designed us. We are designed to govern over all of the earth. The end of this was to be God's glory. and not that, that what the Scripture says? And as the water covers the sea, so the glory of God would cover the entirety of this world. And that's part of our objective as we rule as kings is to see that God's glory covers the entirety of this world. Well, that brings me to the second aspect of man's calling, and that's Worship. God established the seventh day. The Sabbath day is the day of rest in the context of this creation work. The rest is the rest that God Himself enjoys. That's an important theology for us to understand. We see in Psalm 95, it's the great call of worship. O come and worship the Lord. And and then it says, but... Do not harden your hearts as in the day of provocation and know that they will not enter into My rest. Worship and rest go together. This is the rest that when God finished creating, He looked over all of it and He says, behold, it's all very good. And then He rested. And that rest means a satisfaction with what He has done. Ever made a project and at the very end of it, you stand back and you look and you can just rest satisfied with that project's completion. That is God's creative rest of which we are invited to enter and enjoy. And that's worship. It's what we're doing right now. We're enjoying His creative work, His redemptive work, His new heavens and new earth work. We come to give Him grateful praise. Well, that rest is the sphere in which God Himself enjoys Himself in the light of what He has done. And yet we're called in to that great sphere and to join God and enjoying Him in the work that He has done. This is worship. And we express that enjoyment through singing and grateful praise and prayer and fellowshipping with God. And that rest is not an inactive state where we merely put our feet up on the couch and we nap all day long. It is a day of worship. And a worship is an activity of a priestly design. And the Bible will reveal to us on subsequent chapters in the Pentateuch that a priest is one who is chosen out from among God's people to represent God's people before the presence of God. That's in order of a priest. And that principle holds true from the beginning. Man was created in God's image. He was put in God's world over God's world. And on the Sabbath, man would gather up the praises of all of God's creation and represent all of God's creation before the presence of God and put voice to the praises of all of creation. We have sung about the hills and the rivers and the mountains that clap their hands in Psalm 98. What we are doing is we are putting voice to the praise of God's grateful praise of His creation as the priest as we come before the presence of God and offer up all of this praise of His creation. See, man is inseparable in this priestly duty from the earth. That's why we have the Noahic flood. That's why we have the responsibilities that we do. So when God says on the fourth day, and he created the sun and the moon and the stars, and he said it's good. We read from Job 38 verse 7, when God created the world, and in that day, the scripture tells us the morning stars sang together. There is a praise that God has created in this world that now we are to give voice to. And as man stands over creation as its representative, as a priest, he then represents the world's praise and the worship and thanksgiving before God, giving voice to it all. Worshiping and reigning. Priests and kings. Kings. From the beginning, we've called, been called to this office, to this duty, to these, to this high calling and privilege, to this vocation. It sends the world on a particular trajectory, all the way from the beginning, that we now see in Revelation 21 and 22, the glory of it all coming to bear in a wonderful expression. The royal and the priestly vocation of human beings stands at the interface between God and His creation, bringing God's wise and generous counsel to the creation and to the world, and also giving articulate praise and grateful praise back to its creator. That's our responsibility. That's our purpose. That's how you were designed. In the beginning, we see man made in the image of God and set down in the rawest form of God's created world, given a calling to rule and to worship, to create culture, to give a voice to creation's praise. And left on this trajectory, we end up in the garden city in Revelation 21 and 22. From the beginning, the trajectory was there. That's why in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 22, that garden that God had put man, it references the gold of Ophir there, under his feet, in the earth. But what we see in Revelation 21 and 22 is that gold of Ophir and those precious stones now have been discovered, they have been mined out, and now they have been placed in the city because culture takes from God's material and he begins to cultivate it for the glory of God into something as the pattern of God is into something more glorious. Well, something tragic happened that seemed to jeopardize the whole plan and trajectory. And that was when man rebelled against God and sinned against him, overstepping his bounds. He was dissatisfied with being merely the vicegerent, but he overstepped his God-given authority and he wanted to be like God. In fact, it was in that very act when God cursed man, woman, and the serpent, God then drove man out of the garden and heaven and earth were separated. Before, man walked in the garden in the cool of the day with God. But not anymore. This had to be restored. And we find in Revelation 21 and 22 that heaven does come back down and meets with earth here and it is restored, but it all began here and it's going to end here. We find that the image of God in man is not completely erased or destroyed, but it is severely marred. It is distorted. And now what man does is he still has a lot of these abilities and faculties that he has because this image of God still remains but it's all distorted. But what he does is he now takes his great ability by virtue of this image, and he begins creating and worshiping in a way that is abominable. Because man is both a priest and a king, he now takes the things of the ground and He forms them into an idol and He worships the idol. The work of His own hands. That's where idolatry comes from. It comes from the very image of God in us completely skewed away from God and turned against God to replace God with idolatry. But see, it's, it's borrowing something from the worldview that God originally intended when he created us in his image. We're just destroying it. We're just maligning it. Along the way, we see elements of these cultural progressions because of man being designed as kings and priests. We see Cain going out and building a city. In Genesis 4, that's part of the cultural endeavor. That's what we're going to see in Genesis, or Revelation 21. 20, we're going to see a city. We see in Genesis 4 the different trades emerging. Jabal, who was the father, kind of the head of, if you will, those who dwell in tents and li- have livestock. Jubal was the father of music. And then Tubal Cain was the instructor of every kinds of craftsmen in bronze and iron. We see the different trades and the different skills and the division of labor in this cultural work. Which then culminates in Genesis 11 when the people together said, let us build cities and a tower to Babel, or the tower of Babel, a city up into heaven. Again, taking all their creative abilities and their their kingly abilities, and then yet worshiping something that is not God because they still worship in their maligned priestly duties. And all of these were because they were able to do that because of the image of God that remained in man, but they're all cultural endeavors now that are skewed and set against God rather than for God. So in getting the program back on track, if you will, God intervenes with the covenant of Noah. Now he began with the seed of the, of the, the woman who had crushed the, the seed of the serpent. We can see all where this is going. We already have tracked this. We know where this is going. But in the covenant that he establishes with Noah... That includes the earth. And when God established that covenant, He says, I'm going to make my covenant with you, Noah, and with your sons and the whole earth. Because the whole earth fell under the curse, now God has to also recompose it. And that's part of the covenant of grace. With Israel, He made a covenant, reestablishing the priesthood of man over the earth. In Exodus 19, at the Mount of Sinai, before Right in this context, he, he is saying you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And Israel, it, it, its responsibility under the old covenant was to act as a whole nation of priests for all of the rest of humanity. With David, we see the establishing, the reestablishing of the righteous rule of Of man over the earth and the Davidic kingdom and that Davidic covenant. Yet we find all of those fulfilled in Jesus, the last Adam, the priest king. And that's what we just sang about in Psalm 110. God in Jesus gets everything back on track, the trajectory is still heading in that direction. He repairs and he reestablishes the image of God in man, in Christ. If you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, to Ephesians chapter 4, we have two passages, one in Ephesians and the parallel in Colossians. In Ephesians chapter 4, this is giving us some instruction regarding our priestly kinghood and how then we should live. Ephesians 4.22 says that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to his deceitful lust. The old man which was made in the image of God, which has fallen in sin, which was marred, and whose bent was against God, but still using all of the faculties that you had to go against God and not do things for God. You put off that old man, verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. A parallel passage to that is in Colossians chapter three, verse nine. And if you turn there, you'll see the other dimension of God's image that is being restored. When it says Colossians three nine, do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. See, the image of God is being renewed in Christ so that man will be restored to his rightful place as priest and king. And that's why man is called to worship when Jesus saw the woman at the well, he says that God is seeking true worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth. And the image of God in Christ is being restored in us as we worship. That's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. But we all with an unveiled face beholding as in a mirror The glory of the Lord. What it's saying here is we behold the glory of God, the risen Christ. We are being transformed into the same image from glory into glory, just as the Spirit by the Lord. Now, in order to properly rule here as God's vicegerent, we must gather to worship. This is, this is a, a really important application that most Christians today do not understand. I know that most Christians do not understand this today because I get emails all the time asking for clarifications why we're still meeting in public worship. And my answer is, well, why do you still go shopping at Lowe's? Why is our government still operating in their business? And why is that considered essential? And that essential, but worship is not. Fortunately, our governor has said worship is essential. Because in order to properly rule here as God's vicegerent, as His representative sovereign over this creation in the image of God, we must gather to worship. That was man's big mistake in the very beginning that sent him off course when he began to assume the authority of his kingdom work apart from his priestly obligation. For the sake of time, I won't connect those dots, but perhaps maybe I'll challenge you to do so. God does not want you to misunderstand your calling. Back in Ephesians one, if you would just flip back a few pages there, turn with me at the end of chapter one, beginning at verse 18. Now he's praying here, and he wants the eyes of your understanding to be enlightened. Ephesians 1:18, that the eyes of your understanding being lightened that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised them from the dead, and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Pop quiz! Where is Christ Christ? Now. That's right. And do you see this is part of your calling and vocation? What does it mean for a new humanity to be restored into the image of God? See, it says at the end of chapter 1 there, And he has put all things under his feet and he gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the physical manifestation of Christ. Christ is the head. We are the body. He has gone and sit at the right hand of God the Father and we are here upon the earth to continue the work of the king and priestly work he's given us to do. And now where are we gathered with Christ today? Ephesians 2, verse 6. What does it mean to be restored in the image of God? And He has raised us up together and made us sit together. Where? In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, it's in this very same context that we see the priesthood of God being restored. God's people are His temple. The tabernacle was a figure of the garden original, but it was the the transient tent that moved around with God's people. The temple was the permanent version saying, okay, now we're anchored here upon the earth and this is God's land. Christ's body, which was crucified and but was raised up, became the new temple, but His people are the temple, and now with head and body, temple and heaven and earth, now come together, and the presence of God is in His temple. And that's where the Scriptures go on in Ephesians 2, verse 21 right there. Skip on down to verse 21. Whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord in whom you also are built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God's people in Christ are the interface between heaven and earth. And you join Him in a heavenly reign and in a priesthood. He is the high priest. And we can only go th- to God through Him. But now we as kings and priests reign with them and we are now restored to this vicegerent position being restored in the image of God and ruling over the face of this earth. Satan no longer has dominion here. It has been given to Christ and His people. You'll find a very astounding passage in is it Matthew 24. That he has established the kingdom for us. Where this interface, God's people, the temple, where the Spirit of God dwells. Here upon the earth with Christ as our head in the heavenlies where we now have this heaven and earth space where we worship God and we go out from here taking His wise and generous counsel to the world. And we bring it back in next week and we bring and vocalize the praises of creation. This is our role and our responsibility. This is not a sacred and secular vocation. This is a comprehensive purpose and design that we all live out and we live it out collectively together. Now if we go back to Revelation 21 we'll bring this to a close for this morning anyway. In Revelation 21 this is the passage where Verse 1, I saw the new heavens and the new earth for the first heaven and the first had passed away and there was no more sea. By the way, let me just mention this as a, as a, as a tangent but an important point. When Peter talks about the world will be destroyed uh, through fire, he does not mean that this world is going to be completely eradicated and a completely new creation comes in. That that would deny really the whole doctrine of the resurrection and from which the earth now groans waiting for its complete redemption. The fire there is the fire of God's judgment which burns up all of the rubbish and brings forth the purity. It's like Job would say, and when I am tried I will come forth as gold. And he's using the refining fire illustration, Job is, when he's saying that as, a, as gold with all these impurities put into the trying fires of God, it now skims up to the top of the impurities. He skims it off and now what's left is the pure gold. And God's holiness as it then shines upon the earth. Now with that holiness which is just the burning fire of God that we see in in Isaiah 6 which is that judgment of God's people and all of the world then brings purity to God's people which then we relish and bask in this holy glory but then which purges it from all of the impurities of that's affected the world that's what it means for the world to come through the fire and all of the old things have passed away. Behold, new things! All the things have become new. And then John says in verse twenty or twenty one two. Then I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared by God as a bride adorned for her husband. Here, here is the bride of Christ. Here is the church. Here is the holy city. Here is the New Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Here it's finally now, and it's come down, and it's coming to the glorified earth. And what we see there is we see two main things. We see, number one, God puts everything right, He writes all of the wrongs. That's what we mean by God's judgment. That's why for God's people, judgment, God's judgment is a longing. That's why the psalmist would pray. That's why Psalm 98 is filled with praise when he comes to judge the world in righteousness. Because God's judgment is making everything right, and he's righting all of the wrongs, and that's what it means. That's what he says in verse 4. When God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, there shall no more, be more, no more death, nor sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. That is the yielding of God's judgment. It includes also everything that destroys and defaces the, the earth in verse 8. But the cowardly and the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's God's judgment. Making everything right. Executing, executing righteousness. So we see, first of all, that we see that make, God puts everything right. That's His justice. His judgment, that is. His judgment. As both positive and and. and and negative implications to it. But the second thing we see begins in verse 21 or verse 11 and goes through verse 21, we see that there's a place of exquisite beauty. The descriptions of the jewels and the other adornments in the city echoes that of the past when we see the intricate beautiful tapestry in the tabernacle and the beautiful, most beautiful part of the tabernacle was actually in the holy of holies and could only be seen from the inside. Only God and the high priest saw that. You look at the construction of the tabernacle, pretty bland, but from the inside, it was glorious. You know, when the construction of Solomon's temple, they had these two big pillars that go up. Absolutely no structural purpose in that whatsoever. They were for beauty and for glory. We have Psalm 98, which bids us to walk around and view the beautiful city of God. Beautiful in elevation. So we see a place here in Revelation 21 and 22 of exquisite beauty. Now those two aspects of this glorious city to which we are headed, those two aspects, just judgment and beauty. The judgment is putting everything right that is wrong, and the beauty is the unveiling of God's glorious beauty in the world. And both of those are of considerable importance in understanding the goal for which our Christian calling points. In our calling, we have the image of God restored to us in Christ. And we are are responsible and we are privileged with the priesthood where we bring in the worship of all of creation. We gather it up and we vocalize this. And we worship God in the beauty of holiness. And we have the responsibility of the kingdom where we co-reign with Christ here upon the earth, where we then take God's wise counsel out to the world in generating justice and beauty, righting all the wrongs. And what the church is, the church is a microcosm of the future glorified world. See, it's within these temple walls, you can track with me now, right? Within these temple walls, we give voice to grateful praise of God's creation. You know, it's interesting as I studied the liturgies through the history of the church, redemption and creation always go hand in hand. And it's interesting, all the way back to the second century in the Sertium Corda, portion of where we come to the Lord's table, it reflects back upon God's creation and we join in with the angels and the archangels. That's a very ancient tradition liturgically in identifying heaven and earth together. Creation and redemption. But then we go out into the world and we bring God's counsel to the world for the orderliness of the world. Our twin calling is priests and kings to worship and to generate justice and beauty in the world. And this is done in the power of the Spirit in the Gospel. It's not a a mere abstract universe for which we labor. We're laboring and worshiping toward the end that we are headed. Here upon the earth. We're going to reign with Christ upon the earth. In fact, we already are. All power and authority has been given unto me. Go ye therefore, baptize, teaching them, right? There is the kingdom. And he is now empowering his people to be successful with his mission. Our calling and purpose is to live today in the light of that glorified city. That's the vision. Now he says, now get busy toward that end. Let me just have a couple of applications here as we think about this in closing. We're called to be kings and priests. These two go together just like we see in the glorious city. We are we are reigning priest. We are a royal priesthood. These are not to be separated into sacred and secular roles. We don't worship the Lord on the Lord's day and then go into the world to rule in a disjointed and disconnected way from our worship. Neither do we see a church on a parallel track with a civil government now working together toward the glorious end. That is not what Scripture reveals. The church itself, with Christ as her head, is the glorious kingdom and the glorious city upon the earth to, into which kings will bring their glory, Revelation 22 says. We are called to be kings and to reign with Christ. And that rule as kings includes two things. Number one, it includes generating justice and beauty. You've heard me say before, you need to live redemptively in life. And I use an illustration. That means when you're going down the road and you see trash on the the sidewalk, simply picking that piece of trash up, and throwing it in the garbage can is living redemptively. That's just a small but important thing as you think about beautifying the world around you. That is redemptive living. Everywhere Jesus went, he left it always better. Now, when we think about our activity of ruling and generating justice, Justice is putting everything right that is wrong, that happens with the gospel. That's why we're to take the gospel to the four corners of the world. Remember, we are uh, just representatives, ambassadors of Christ. We are not the owner, we're not the sovereign. We point people to Christ, we teach them to obey his commands. And we live for justice. And to live for justice means that must first begin in our lives with the gospel. We are to defend the helpless and to care for the widows and to care for the fatherless. We are to pursue holiness and peace with all people in our personal lives. And developing a character in our personal lives takes hard work. And notice we are not working hard to gain our salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But rather we work hard at our calling to which we have been saved by grace alone. Can I just get a nod to see that you understand that? I'm not at all espousing a works-based salvation, but boy, when you're saved, you're saved into good works and get busy. And it takes hard work to develop the kind of good character and the Christian character that's going to change the world. It's no different like an athlete or a musician who wants to be a great musician is going to have to work hard and have good habits and to develop the musicianship of his musicianship character. And just like us Christians, we're going to have to learn a new language and we have to learn a new culture and we have to work hard and discipline ourselves into Godliness. That's what Paul was telling Timothy. Sanctification is all of grace, it's all of God's work, but it yields an activity in us and causes us to be diligent in the development of that character. And in so doing, we are then generating justice in this world by setting everything wrong that is right. And it starts within our own character. But the second characteristic of our rule is generating Beauty. This is an equal aspect of our calling as rulers. We are called to build cities, to create art that glorifies God, to compose music that will give voice to God's praise. And in your everyday vocation, whether you're a housewife or a plumber, you can generate justice and beauty for the glory of God if you do all things as unto the Lord. As you labor in Christ's character. Now that will necessarily preclude some professions and some activities in life. Whatever your activities you engage in on Monday through Saturday, does it generate justice and beauty in such a way that you can stand here before God in the sanctuary on the Lord's day and give Him praise for the progress in that activity toward the holy end that we now see in Revelation 22? That's part of our kingly role. Number two, but we also are called to be priests. We are called to worship God, to give voice to God's grateful praise. And that requires observation of everything that goes on around us. It requires us to get science back on track with a God-centered cosmology. It requires us in whatever we do, whether therefore we eat or drink, to do all to the glory of God. So as we gather here as God's people, as priest, at the intersection of heaven and earth, as a microcosm of the new heavens and the new earth, the interface between God and His creation, and we worship Him in Christ, seated in the heavenlies, we have a vision here of what this church ought to be about. That's where His church is going. Worship and culture. Priestly work and kingly work. Showing forth Christ in all that we do. Acknowledging Him in all of our ways. Generating justice and beauty. Worshiping Him in grateful praise. And Christ, God, gets us back on track. And God has invited us to see the end. And now, as we've seen the end, he says, now get busy living in the light of where you're headed. That's how you're to live life today. That's your purpose. That's your design. Now, get busy. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, how thankful we are that you have painted such a beautiful picture for your people not just one of imagination in, in the abstract form, but one here upon the earth, which is so beautiful that we cannot comprehend its beauty. But Lord, as you have made us in your image and have restored us in Christ and are being restored, we pray that all of our faculties and energies and power would be used for your glory in the priestly and kingly work that you have assigned us and designed us to be from the beginning. How thankful we are that we can gather here this day to worship and to gather up the praise of God's creation. Lord, we're thankful for the abilities that you've given this church, and we do ask that you would help each one of us to find our gifting and how we are to individually contribute to the whole. And we pray that you would guide us around the table now as we fellowship with God and know that we are your people and that you, the one creator, is our God. Be glorified to apply this message that as we leave here in your temple today and go into the world, we would take your wise and generous counsel to live redemptively in everything that we do. And we pray you'd bring forth the fruit of those labors to the glory of God in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.